Have you ever watched a movie that shows you kind of a scene and then it fades out and the whole rest of the movie builds up to that scene that you saw in the beginning? Uh, that, that's kind of what James here that does here in his book. That, that technique is called reverse chronology in film. And I'm pretty sure James is like one of the originators. Because if you read the book of James, what you'll see is that chapter one is pretty much a summary statement of all the themes that he's going to touch on in the next four chapters. So he gives you some kind of advance notice of where he's headed. And uh, rather than kind of intentionally walk through every verse of chapter one, the way we're going to approach this book is today we're going to talk about a key theme in chapter one, which is trials uh, that, that we'll face. Uh, but we're not going to hit every last little verse in chapter one. And the reason for that is uh, we're going to come back to those as we go through the following four chapters. So uh, if you're one of those verse by verse kind of people, I love you. Uh, don't worry, we're going to hit everything in this book as we go through it. We're just not going to do it uh, today. <laughs> so we're in chapter one, and James introduces all these key themes. And he is going to start teaching us. And in fact, the key themes he introduces, there are 12 of them. And remember, James's actual name is not James, which is a Gentile name. His actual name in the Greek, in the Hebrew, is Jacob. And so uh, being Jewish is who he is. He's Jesus's brother. He grew up in a Jewish household. He memorized the same scriptures that Jesus memorized. We, we heard Jesus all through his ministry quoting scripture. We saw him on the cross quoting the Psalms. James grew up in that same household, that same uh, household that was immersed with the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew Bible. So James speaks from that perspective. And when he introduces 12 key themes, he's doing that on purpose. 12 was an important number to the Jews. There were uh, 12 tribes, right? This is why Jesus chose 12 disciples. So when, when James chooses 12 subjects, he's saying, look, these are kind of the, the bedrock principles, man. If you get these 12 right, you're going to do okay following Jesus. So numbers are important to him, and we'll see that later in a little bit. But that's why we're going to basically take 12 weeks on this uh, letter that he wrote, because we're going to hit every one of those uh, topics. So he starts his letter off like this. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So he tells us right off the bat who he's writing to. And it's important, again, to notice that. James is not writing necessarily to Gentile Christians, but to Jewish ones. Okay, And that will become important as we start to dig in to some of these key principles he's going to teach us. It's probably because this letter was written in the late 40s, A.D. So this is one of the oldest letters in your New Testament. Remember, as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in your New Testament, you're not reading in chronological order. Okay, so James is one of the oldest. Many scholars say the oldest book in the New Testament. And interestingly, we know that the person James was a major part of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where Gentiles were for the first time officially recognized and able to come in to kind of full communion in the Christian church. So it's interesting that with this old date of James, he doesn't mention Gentile Christians once in this whole letter, probably because it had not become an issue yet. But what had become an issue was persecution. So when he says the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's talking to probably his flock, the Jewish Christians that were there in Jerusalem until a persecution broke out. 
And the persecution broke out starting with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 8, if you want to go back and read that. Uh, after that happened, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that the Christians were dispersed all throughout Judea and Samaria. Interestingly, uh, starting to fulfill what Jesus said in the Great Commission, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the earth, right? So you get this dispersion that happens. And all of this context is important for us because what James is going to talk about right off the bat is trials. And these early Christians, particularly the Jewish ones, knew what it meant to be persecuted. They knew trials. They were being rejected by the Jews who were trying to kill them. They were being rejected by the Roman Empire because they were saying things like Jesus is Lord and the Roman Empire was requiring its citizens to say Caesar is Lord. So James is going to talk a lot about trials in chapter 1 and it's important to remember that the context of those trials is persecution. Okay, so next he writes this in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So as you remember that James is writing that these people are being persecuted for their faith, okay, we have to remember that these are uh, a specific kind of trials that he has in mind. Trials related to your persecution. The reason they're in the dispersion is because they're fleeing persecution of the Jews and of the Romans in Jerusalem. So why should you consider it joy when you're persecuted for your faith? Well, it's because you're doing it right. In, in, in James's world, you didn't have the luxury of being kind of a casual Christian. You didn't have the luxury of saying, oh yeah, I believe that. That's, that's cool. That's good for me. You know, I, I, I believe in Jesus, right? You didn't have the luxury of just having an internal personal relationship with Jesus that didn't really expose itself on the outside. In this context, you couldn't buy a house in the suburbs and kind of anonymously follow Jesus and just stay away from the big sins and, and you're good. That was not the kind of Christianity that you could have and definitely not the kind of Christianity that James was interested in. In James's world, to say you're a Christian would almost certainly bring difficulty upon you and your family. It'd be hard to keep your business afloat in a world where people wouldn't want to patronize your business because you called yourself a Christian, right? It would be hard to find work. It would be hard to keep your family together as a Christian. If, if you became a follower of Jesus and your brother didn't or your sister didn't or your parents weren't, okay, that family would often break up and they wouldn't want to follow you into that or be close to you because you were the object now of persecution. It'd be hard to find work if you marked yourself as a Christian. And that probably aided the spread of the gospel, actually, because Christians might stay in a, in a city outside of Jerusalem having fled persecution until they were found out again as Christians or until uh, persecution came to that city, and then they'd move on and try to find work in another city. So this was the reality of anyone following Jesus in those days. And then here comes James saying, consider it all joy when you face these trials of many kinds. How could you consider this all joy? What James and many other writers in the New Testament uh, were saying is that if you're being persecuted, you're doing it right. Consider it joy when you face trials because that means you're, you're getting it. You're really following Jesus. It means your faith is having meaning and impact in this world. 
So to put it in James's terms, or sorry, Jesus's terms, no one gets persecuted for hiding their light under a bushel, if you remember that teaching from Jesus. But then James gets specific. He says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And when perseverance has its full effect, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now remember, we talked about James's Jewishness, right? So if you're a Jewish writer, when you do things 12 times, people listen. And when you do things seven times, people listen. When you do things three times, people listen, because these are numbers of perfection. So interestingly, this word, you will become perfect, James uses seven times. It's an important word to him, an important word for our understanding of what he's getting at in this whole book. So we're going to take a minute and just kind of dig into this word. It's the Greek word teleos, and it's the Hebrew word tamim, okay? And, and it connotes a sense of wholeness and integrity of a person. So we have to get out of our minds this sense of uh, what we think of as perfect. What teleos does not mean is it doesn't mean without mistakes, okay? That's not the kind of perfection James is talking about here. And we know that because we know this word, and we know how it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, and we know the Hebrew roots of it. And what it means, it's, it's living in such a way that your actions are a, a natural and perfect outflow of your values and beliefs, particularly in James's case, the values and beliefs that you've been given by Jesus. It's this whole personhood, okay? James knew that most of us, all of us, before we know Jesus, walk around fractured. Okay, we, we have brokenness in our lives. Okay, so he uses this word because he's talking about when you come to follow Jesus, you may face these trials, but be joyful because in that, you are living as this whole person with integrity, your actions following your faith, okay? And that becomes a core tenet of this whole letter. If that's all we get out of the next 12 weeks, then James would be like, okay, good job, <laughs> right? You, you, you got the, the meat of it, okay? So this is the essence of his overall message. The concept of teleos also carries with it a sense of maturity. You see Paul use this terminology when he talks about how he used to drink milk as a young follower of Jesus, but now he has grown up and he has matured or reached perfection and he needs meat, right? Solid meat, solid food, okay? So as we mentioned, much of James's teaching was influenced by uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus uses this same word, teleos, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You, you shall achieve through me, Jesus is saying, wholeness and integrity of your life. The things that you do will be a natural outpouring of your values and beliefs and the faith which he has planted into you. So yes, God is perfect in the sense that he never messes up. <laughs> he doesn't make mistakes. But that's not the kind of perfection that James is talking about, that Jesus is talking about. So we need to kind of uh, get that out of our minds for this word. It doesn't mean don't try to follow Jesus closely and not make mistakes, of course. It just means that, that this word, perfect, is wholeness and living with integrity, okay? So from here on, James goes through this kind of dizzying teaching that basically touches on everything he's going to expound upon in his letter. James was heavily influenced by wisdom literature of the Old Testament of the times and of the literature of the times. He was heavily influenced by the Proverbs. So his book will often, or his letter, will often read like the Proverbs. So you'll read a little section on wisdom, and then you'll read a little section on 
uh, taming your tongue. And then you read a little section on something else on your heart and it, it, it feels disjointed. Uh, but as you go home after this, I hope, and read chapter one again, I want to give you the flow of the chapter. So it goes something like this. James says, consider your trials joy because they will produce in you endurance, which will lead to teleos, perfection, where your actions are fully dependent upon your Jesus-like value and faith. Then he moves to wisdom. He says, you'll need wisdom to get through, so ask God for it in faith. Then he moves to trials again. He says, you'll probably face poverty, or poverty. No worries. View it as a gift. The rich have already received what they're getting. Okay, poverty in these trials may cause you to get frustrated and angry, but don't get bitter. Stand your ground as a follower and receive the crown of life. And he ends with this statement about what is pure religion, and he essentially says, loving the least, orphans and widows, right? Even if you are one of the least, love the least with all you've got and stay away from the ways of the world. And the rest of the letter, like we said, is going to be James expounding on those themes and those principles that he introduces. So today I just want to give you a taste of what's become, what's to come, because we're going to hear about each of these themes in detail. And so as we get into the book of James, it's important for us to understand why suffering and trials are so closely associated with Christianity. The, the connection was a reality for James's audience. He wasn't telling them, uh, as Jesus was, that they would face persecution at some future time. He was telling them, the reason you're facing it right now is this, okay? So he was talking to people who were facing persecution in real time. He's teaching from the same perspective as Jesus was, but it's now happening, in other words. So to James and to Jesus and to Paul and to John, there are only two options, okay? You're either of the kingdom of God or you're of the kingdom of this world. So you'll see James use that word world. It's the Greek cosmos. And, and there's a lot to that word. But he's basically saying there's, there's going to be two types of kingdoms. You're either, there's going to be mine, the kingdom of God, or in Matthew he calls it the kingdom of heaven, or there's going to be the kingdom of this world, Okay. And these kingdoms aren't just different from one another. They're not just merely two options. These kingdoms are at war, okay? That's a, a core foundational element of Jesus' teaching, of James' teaching, of Paul's teaching, of John, uh, from his gospel to the book of Revelation, okay? That there are two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom not of God, and they're not just different. They are at war. And when Christianity is done right, There'll be some fireworks. <laughs> There'll be some, some tension between these two kingdoms because Christianity done right will always challenge those other kingdoms, right? The Pharisees of the day persecuted Christians because their own kingdom message was, was being threatened, right? Because the Pharisees wanted to, in their kingdom, they wanted to keep power and control over the people. Well, and they did that through uh, wielding their knowledge of the law or the Torah. But along comes Jesus and he says, I fulfilled the law. He doesn't minimize the law. He just says, you can't control me or my followers because I've already fulfilled the law and they're going to live in freedom, not the chains that you're offering. Okay, so that's one way that the kingdom of God and one of the kingdoms of this world were at war. The Pharisees were trying to use God's word to leverage control over the people and oppress them to tell the, the people with leprosy, you can't come in, you got to stay out to to tell the people who uh, were blind from birth that, oh, you, you sinned, or your parents sinned, right? Control, control, control. 
to, to, to kind of maintain their power within Jerusalem and, and beyond, right? But the kingdom of God was coming in and you have Paul saying, it's for freedom you've been set free, right? So these kingdoms were colliding here. Christians followed Jesus who had already fulfilled the law. Same thing with, with the Romans, okay? So you had the, the kingdom of God that Jesus and that James are expounding and teaching. And then you had another kingdom, uh, the Romans, right? And uh, what, what were they doing? Well, typically the Romans would assume the gods of the people they conquered into their own pantheon. But they never did this with Christianity. Why? Because Christianity taught that you're either of God's kingdom or of Rome's kingdom. You're either of God's kingdom or the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of this world encompasses all kingdoms that there could be out there, right? You can't be both. Rome was founded upon power and fear and intimidation. Jesus's kingdom is founded on love and equality. Rome's kingdom was successful because they mastered exploiting people. They mastered squeezing the most out of those with the least. Such a massive population of theirs was were either enslaved or impoverished, it would make our current situation in this nation look silly. I mean, it was just unbelievable how masterfully they uh, exhibited this idea of squeezing the most out of those with the least. But Christianity again comes and says, you're either of the kingdom of God or not. Okay, there's no in-between or or middle ground, and this kingdom focused on love, you have Jesus saying, whatever you've done to the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you've also done to me. That flew in the face of the Romans because they were pushing down and oppressing and squeezing these people who Jesus said, I'm identifying with them. So whatever you've done to them, you've also done to me. If you've exploited them, like the Romans, you've also exploited me. And so this is why so much of James is very black and white. So just to, to give you a taste of where we're headed. James chapter two, one to 13. You either treat people with equality or you need to double check if you really are following Jesus. James chapter two, 14 to 26. You either offer real help to those in need or don't claim to follow Jesus. James three, one to 12. You can't praise God and curse the people he has made at the same time. If you do, you don't have faith. James chapter four, one through 10. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Doesn't get any more black and white than that. James chapter five, one through six, you can't exploit people and call yourself a Christian. All of these teachings of James and of course by Jesus as well are, are contrary to the two kingdoms that were at play in the world during James's time, the Pharisaical kingdom and the Roman uh, empire or, or kingdom, right? The Roman empire demanded loyalty to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And along came these Christians or little Christ saying, no, Jesus is Lord. It's a tale of two cities. If you're a Christian, you're fighting for a kingdom that's not of this world because no kingdom of this world is set up to give honor and dignity to its lowest members. The kingdoms of this world were and still are set up to squeeze those who are the lowest, to stand upon them to reach some height, to, to use people, to exploit people, to move people out of my way. This is completely contrary to the kingdom of God. Now here's where it might get tough for some of you listening. Stick with me. When we see the murders of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, as of late, it reminds us that there are gross injustices that still happen in the kingdom of this world. 
We're not to sit in silent disappointment at the way things are. The way of this kingdom is not to just sit back and say, oh, that's too bad. That's really tough. And then go on about our business. James is going to talk about later. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. That's what that is. That's hearing, but not doing. If we just kind of sit back and say, oh, isn't that, isn't that rough? I'm sorry for them. I'll say, I'll say a quick prayer, but I won't actually do anything. Our faith, if genuine, should lead us to stand in solidarity with those who are being persecuted, those who are being treated unfairly, those who are being killed without cause, those who are being exploited. That's what our faith calls us to do. That's what this kingdom of God is about. And if we do that, we will push back against the kingdoms of this world, whatever they may be. We push back. Each follower of Jesus will respond differently in his or own, her own unique way. I know many at 12 Springs have been participating in peaceful protests. Many have been intentionally reading new books or new perspectives or trying to find ways to make friendships with people of, of different ethnicities, different backgrounds. And I applaud all of that that you guys are doing because I think that is the kind of thing that we better start doing because the church, like we said last week, must be a leader in this, not just a sidelines commentator, but a leader in this racial justice conversation. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And this doesn't mean you should be ashamed to be an American. Let me be clear. Our country has done some great things over the years. However, until the kingdom of America lines up completely with the kingdom of God, we've got work to do, right? Until these two can overlap and be in perfect harmony, then we should be fighting for change. We should be standing with those who are being oppressed, no matter who is oppressing them, right? It's, it's, it's not about patriotism here. This is about the kingdom of God in real time. How are you, how, how are you going to operate out of teleos? How are your faith and values that tell you neighbors are to be loved just as I love myself? Your faith and values that tell you these people that I'm seeing being hurt on TV or these friends of mine who are being treated with discrimination, they're created in God's image as I am. And if your faith is telling you that, and your values tell you that, and your Jesus and your Bible tells you that, but you don't have any action toward helping them make that a reality in their life, then James would say to you, your faith is dead. That's tough. But that's why we're jumping into this book, because I don't want to have a dead faith. I don't know about you. This is why the early Christians James was writing to got killed when they saw the Romans mistreating the poor in the streets. They stood up and they pushed back. When they saw the Pharisees leveraging power and control, they stood up and they pushed back. When they saw the Pharisees telling the, lepros the people with leprosy and the people who were blind or the people who couldn't walk that they were somehow less, they stood up with Jesus and pushed back. And that got them killed. So some questions for you and I today. What systems... Are there in your life that your faith is at odds with? What kingdoms are there that you're exposed to or that you're a part of every day in your life that are at odds with the kingdom of God? And you can, there, there's many, many kingdoms, right? This doesn't just mean, uh, you know, a country or something like that. There's a kingdom at your workplace. How are people treated there? Are people discriminated against? Are women treated with dignity and respect at your workplace? If not, your faith calls you to do something about that. Um, what about school? If you're a young person watching this at your school, 
Are people treated with dignity and respect? Or are uh, some kids getting bullied? Or some kids getting treated as lesser because they're not in the gifted class? Or whatever, whatever might be happening, you need to look at that kingdom as well and start to stand up and stand with those who are being hurt. What about the kingdom of your own family? This is sometimes where we have the most influence, uh, but oftentimes we don't turn the mirror back around. Are you, are you treating your family members, your, your, your own family with dignity and respect? Are you living in teleos in your own family? Our faith calls us to do something about this, to have eyes wide open for where we can make change. So in that light, I wanna tell you about an event coming up with, uh, that you're all invited to. Our Justice Ministry, the SURE organization, has a solidarity rally coming up. Uh, it's gonna be on July 25th at 9 a.m. This is something I really wanted to see us do as an organization and, and us as a church. I hope we can take a significant role in this. I don't know yet if it's gonna be on Zoom or if it's gonna be live somewhere, uh, but whatever form it takes, I wanna invite you to it, July 25th at 9 a.m. Because what we'll do there is we'll see how other communities of faith are responding to uh, the recent events and, and uh, racial tensions and things that we're seeing in our, in our world. Uh, we're gonna look at a letter that we're gonna compose to our own police department, calling on them uh, to do some things differently, to operate in more fairness, really to operate in a way that's more reflective of the kingdom of God. Because again, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are at war. So how can we, with our values, affect change in the kingdom of this world and bring about a situation, a city, a country, more reflective of the values Jesus himself has put within us? Okay, so that's one thing that you can do. That's one kind of tangible idea or offering that I have for you today is to attend this solidarity rally and just hear from some different voices. Okay, we're going to hear from our black brothers and sisters during this and how, how they're experiencing this as followers of Jesus, right? So join us there. That's uh, July 25th. But let me tell you something. I think the same is true today as it was in James's day, that if you begin to stand for justice, you'll pay for it in one way or another. I think that's still true. It's true for James's listeners, and I think it's true for us too. You might not be invited to that parents' meeting at school, right? You might lose some friends because you've chosen the side of those who are hurting, those who are oppressed. You might lose some family members, you know, some relationships might be hurt within your family because people won't approve of what you're doing and how you're living out your faith. But James will talk about again later not being double-minded, right, and tossed by the wind, but by being of a single mind and focused on who we are as followers of Jesus. So when we do experience those trials of many, time, of many kinds, I hope that you'll be able to consider it all joy because in that you will know you are being made perfect or whole. I want to give you a, a couple of verses to close with. Matthew 5.10, again, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll recognize this. I think uh, James may have been uh, meditating on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he wrote this book. He says, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then James later in chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for when he has persevered, he will receive the crown of life.